ways. Before we dive into the text, I want to just say a few things in introduction, just as we get ready to start going and, and work our way throughout this chapter. I think, like we did last week, maybe mentioning an outline of Daniel chapter 9 would be a good thing before we walk through it, just so we know what we're getting into. The bulk of Daniel chapter 9, the first 19 verses, is a prayer from Daniel. One thing we know about Daniel from what we've read so far in the first eight chapters is that he's a man of prayer. What was one circumstance where we saw how dedicated Daniel was to prayer? Do you remember that? What happened in the sixth chapter? Yeah, yeah, so they made the rule that you couldn't pray to anybody except for the king. And so Daniel chose to be thrown into the lion's den rather than going 30 days without prayer. Like that's how dedicated to prayer Daniel was. He said, I'd rather spend the night with the lions in the lion's den and face sure death the way that people would have viewed it than go just a month without talking to God. So we've seen Daniel as a dedicated person whenever it comes to prayer, whenever it comes to talking to God. Well, the first 19 verses will really begin in around verse 3. Um, Dan- we have this prayer recorded from Daniel how he talks to God. There's really two main parts of the prayer. The first part is confession. He's confessing not only the sins of Judah, but also his own personal sins in verses 4 through 15. And then he makes four requests to God in verses 16 through 19. You can see the two different parts of his prayer in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 20. Notice he says there, when I was speaking and praying, well, what did that prayer look like? Number one, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. And then number two, presenting my plea before the Lord my God. So there's two different parts of this prayer. Even Daniel admits that, that it's first confession in verses 4 through 15 about sin. And then Daniel makes some very specific requests to God in verses 16 through 19. So the first 19 verses are pretty easy to think about. You know, chapter 7 through chapter 12 of Daniel is the harder part of Daniel, the more challenging part of Daniel. Well, the first 19 verses of this chapter are really easy to talk about and really easy to think about. We can understand fully what's going on as Daniel is approaching God in prayer. The last eight verses, though, are a little bit of a different story. Um, Verses 20 through 27 is oftentimes called the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Let me just show you what a few people have said about that section of Scripture. Jack, just as a, a fair warning here, Jack Lewis said, few biblical passages have been the subject of more speculation than has this one. There's a lot of different ways of thinking about verses 20 through 27. Is this talking about Jesus' first coming? Is this talking about Jesus' second coming? Is this talking about premillennialism? Is this talking about Antiochus Epiphanes like we talked about last week? That Seleucid king who was so evil and oppressed the Jews. So there's a lot of different ways of, of thinking about this passage. Michael Whitworth, who I'm using one of his resources which I didn't know this, but I was looking through some of the old CDs from past sermons. He was actually here in 2019, so perhaps you remember him. He said, this passage is among the most difficult passages in the Bible. I'll give that a hearty amen. And I think that you might too, especially when we look at verses 24 through 27. Think about the weight of what he's saying that we'll see in a quote here from Myers, which is another Uh, resource that I'm using, Whitworth suggests that this passage 
is among the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. So really, we're really going to wade into some interesting stuff tonight. Meyer said this. He said, within this chapter may be the most difficult passage in the book, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And then he explains a little bit why that is. In other parts of his writings, talking about Daniel, the prophet gave a dream or vision and a rather detailed interpretation of what had been revealed in the vision. That's what we're used to, right? Like in chapter 7. He sees the four beasts, and then a pretty exact interpretation is given. Or in chapter 8, the ram and the goat, and we're able to interpret that pretty clearly. Well, here in the latter part of this chapter, Daniel gave Gabriel's interpretation without giving an abundance of specific details. The nature of the case demands that this text be examined, I think this is important, historically, prophetically, and scripturally according to the available information that we have. Let me tell you how wild people can get with the last part of Daniel chapter 9. You know, there are some who suggest, who try to guess when Jesus is going to return. We've maybe seen that a few different times. Some people like to guess a number of different times. to say On this specific day, May 4th of 2020, Jesus Christ is going to come back and the world is going to end. Those people use Daniel 9 as a part of their reasoning. If you've ever heard of premillennialism and the, the seven years of tribulation that they suggest is going to take place, they draw that here from Daniel chapter 9. So in my opinion, there's a lot of wild stuff that comes out of just those last few verses, verses 24 through 27. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to do the best that we can. And I'm not going to be very confident in, I'm going to suggest an interpretation. I'll be honest with you, I'm not very confident in it. I'm not as confident in what I'm going to say about 24 through 27 as I have been the rest of the book, but we're going to do the best that we can. And if you disagree with my interpretation, you want to fight about it, you go out the front door, I'll go out the back door because that's where my truck is and, and we'll, we'll deal with it that way. Okay, anything else we want to mention there? I think just kind of giving that overview and saying, hey, before we dive into this, this is going to be pretty difficult is, is significant. Okay, well let's dive into the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9 and we'll talk a little bit about this prayer. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azaharis, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned. Can you see the confession there? We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Turning aside from your commandments and rules, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, princes, and fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as it is to this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, princes, and fathers, because we have sinned against you. 
To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws which He set before us by His servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. He has confirmed His words which He spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that He has done, and we have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all Your righteous acts, let Your anger, Your wrath... This is the turning point in verse 16. Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all those who are around us. Now therefore, O O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we don't present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. It's a beautiful, powerful prayer. Before we get there, though, like we have basically throughout every chapter, we need to note the chronology of this, when this has taken place. What does the text tell us in the first couple verses? Yeah, right. The first year of the reign of King Darius, stated twice in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. We've seen him before, haven't we? Remember where? He's one of the main players in chapter 6. When Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, who was Darius? He was a Mede. He was the king of the Medes who reigned alongside of Cyrus, the king of the Persians, for two years. He was one of the rulers in the Medo-Persian empire. Remember, the the Babylonians were conquered by the Medo-Persians. Darius was one of the rulers. We actually saw back in chapter 5 and verse 31, whenever he came to power, remember Belshazzar, the handwriting on the wall happened, and Belshazzar was killed in 30, and then 31, Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And then in chapter 6, we probably find the events of chapter 6 happening also in the first year of his reign. So if we had to nail it down to a year, this is probably somewhere between 539, 538 B.C., if, if you stuck it chronologically, if you arranged Daniel chronologically, it'd squeeze right in the middle of chapter 5 and chapter 6. More than likely taking place a little bit before chapter 6 and a little bit after chapter 5. Okay, well let's move on from that. That just sets the setting for us. I think this is an important point when you look at this first section that the vast majority of Daniel chapter 9, it's what sets the context for us. Daniel knew that Babylonian captivity was almost over. 
Remember back in chapter 1, we saw the first deportation from Judah from Jerusalem. There were three of them total. The first one, Daniel was in. It happened in 605 B.C. Well, now we're looking at 539, 538 B.C., and he knew that this was almost over. I think he knew it for two reasons. First, there was a change in empire. The Babylonians were in power. The Babylonians were conquered. The Medo-Persians took their place. Based on what we've seen throughout Daniel, that wasn't just coincidence, right? It's what was prophesied in Daniel 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It was what was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7 with the four great beasts. It, was, it fulfilled the handwriting on the wall in Daniel chapter 5. So Daniel knew that God was behind this. And so he's sitting and waiting for God to act. Now that world empires, world powers have changed, he's waiting for God to do something on behalf of his people Judah. How else did he know it was almost over? He had a knowledge of Scripture, didn't he? What Jeremiah wrote in about 605, whenever that first deportation took place, he remembered the words of Jeremiah the prophet. How long was the captivity supposed to last? Seventy years, right? Maybe these are the passages that Daniel had in mind. Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, we won't read through it, but notice he says to Judah, you're going to become a ruin and you'll serve the kingdom of Babylon 70 years. Then after those 70 years are completed, I'll punish the king of Babylon. Well, the king of Babylon has been punished. Medo-Persia has risen to power. And so he's looking at this passage, 70 years, this is almost it. This is almost complete. The captivity is almost over. Jeremiah 29 and verse 10 is right before Everybody's favorite verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Sometimes we may read that a little bit out of context. Uh, but here in Jeremiah 29, 10, thus says the Lord God, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill my promise to you to bring you back to this place. He says 70 years in captivity and that's it. You're going to come home after that. So when you look at the chronology of this, Daniel 1 is in 605. Daniel 9 is in 539 to 538 BC. What does that tell us? This 70 years is almost up. This 70 years is almost complete. So Daniel knows that. He knows that the captivity is almost over. So what does he do? Daniel does what he always did. He prayed. He talked to God about it. In verses 4 through 19, he starts with confession in verses 4 through 15. When he as he confesses the sins, notice in verse 20, Daniel's not coming from an arrogant perspective where he's saying, yeah, I've got it all together. I'm just praying for these sinful people of Judah. Now, verse 20 says, I'm praying for their sins and my sins. But as he does, as he does that, in verses 4 through 15, we find this great contrast between Judah and God. How Daniel describes Judah and how Daniel describes God. Let's start with Judah. There's a pretty long list. Daniel spends a lot of time talking about this. He says that Judah had sinned three different times. He had, they had done wrong. They had acted wickedly. They had rebelled. They had turned aside from God's commands. They didn't listen to the prophets who God sent. They didn't obey God's voice by walking in His laws. And after they've gone through all of this, they weren't obedient to God, so they went into Babylonian captivity, and they stayed there at this point for almost 70 years. Even though they had been through all that, look at verse 13. They had still not turned back to God. They had still not entreated God's favor, Daniel says, by turning from their sins and gaining insight by God's truth. So that's who Judah was. That's what Judah had done. In contrast to that, Daniel talks about God. 
The two could not stand further apart. God is great and awesome, verse 4. God kept His side of the covenant, verse 4. The problem was Judah didn't keep their side of the covenant. God remained faithful to His people. His people didn't remain faithful to Him. And that was the issue. God had even tried to warn Judah through His prophets, verse 6 and verse 9, but they didn't listen. Prophets like Jeremiah, the one that Daniel has in mind. God is righteous, Daniel declares. He is merciful and forgiving. So you have this great contrast between Judah and God. They're on polar opposites of one another. So what's the result? Judah sinned. God is righteous and faithful and merciful and forgiving. Daniel really talks about three things. He says, first, God brought on Judah exactly what He promised in the Old Testament law. That's verses 11-13. through 13. It's not just in Jeremiah like we read a few minutes ago, but if you go back to Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy chapter 28, God told them what was going to happen if they were unfaithful to Him. And it's exactly what happened. God brought those promises upon Him. God was serious whenever He spoke in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Verse 14 says that God prepared and brought about calamity upon them. So God had the plan, right? He prepared this great disaster, this captivity to come upon them, and then He brought it about. He planned it and caused it to happen, punishing, disciplining His people. God brought open shame upon them, which is significant. They lived in a society that was very much honor-shame oriented. Our society is not really like that. But the greatest pursuit on a daily basis for any individual person, uphold honor, avoid shame. I want people to view me in a way of honor. I don't want people to, to look at me in a way of shame. God brought shame upon Judah because of their sin. Open shame. Shame that everybody could see. So that's the confession. You have God keeping His side of the covenant. Judah didn't keep their side of the covenant. And because of that, they were punished with 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Now with that in mind, well... Let's take a breath for a second. Is there anything else we want to say before we keep going? Okay, let's look at the second part of this prayer. The four requests of verses 16 through 19. He transitions in verse 16 and makes four very specific requests on behalf of Judah. They're all requests that are centered on, will you please bring your people home? Will you please restore Judah? Will you please restore the Jerusalem and specifically the temple that was lying in ashes where the Babylonians had burned it down? Verse 16, he requests for God to turn his wrath and anger away from Jerusalem. And of course, when God turned his anger away, then in verse 17, he could make his face shine once again upon the ruins of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. These are the things that he's asking for. A request, verse 18, for God to listen, to incline His ear, and to open His eyes to see and hear the desolation of His people in a city, Jerusalem. I want you to see this destruction. I want you to see what's going on. And then verse 19, I want you to do something about it. It's a request for the Lord not to delay. In other words, do this immediately. Bring this about right now. Don't delay in forgiving, paying attention to, and acting on behalf of your people Judah. So what's he asking for? God, we realize we've sinned. 
but I know that you're faithful and merciful and forgiving. And because of that, you brought this calamity on us. But now will you please bring us home? Will you please take us back to Jerusalem? Which eventually happened, right? The Medo-Persians allowed the people of Judah to go back to Jerusalem. And many of the minor prophets, Ezra and Nehemiah, even Esther, are dedicated to that time where Jerusalem is rebuilt. Okay. Anything else on that? Like I said, that's pretty cut and dry. I mean, that's uh, not necessarily hard to understand or interpret or, or think about. Now we're going to look at a different beast here in the uh, 20 through 27. So if we don't have anything else, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get into verse number 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, talking about the temple mount, Jerusalem, the holy hill. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel. Have we seen Gabriel recently? Last week in chapter 8, he's the one who interpreted the vision about the ram and the goat. Uh, he's also seen in the New Testament. Do you know where? He announces two things in the same chapter. The birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Gabriel comes whom I had seen in the vision at the first, well, that's Daniel 8, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, which would be somewhere between 3 to 4 p.m. in the afternoon. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Here we go. Verse 24, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the Word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, that word can also mean Messiah. Your translation might say that an anointed one or Messiah, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Okay, let me say something about translation. I feel like I'm pausing a lot, but I, I, we need to say something about translation here. I don't know how many people are reading out of the ESV like I am, but there's a difference if you're not reading out of the ESV, then what you read out of in verse 25 is a little bit different. Because every other translation says, and we'll talk more about this, from this time, from the decree, to the time of the anointed one is seven weeks and 62 weeks. So 69 total weeks. The ESV doesn't say that. And it's the only translation that doesn't say that. The ESV says from the decree to the time of the anointed one is seven weeks. And then from the anointed one on down is going to be 62 weeks. So, so, Every other major translation puts the two together with and, and the ESV separates it with seven weeks, then 62 weeks. Here's something that's helpful in Bible study. If you ever compare translations and one of them is different than the rest of them, what do you think that says? I think I'm going to take the majority, right? This Hebrew is very difficult. 
can be translated a different way, but if every other major translation translates it one way and the ESV translates it another way, I think I'm going to go with every other major translation. So the way that we're going to talk about it, the way that I think it makes more sense to me at least, is to say seven weeks and 62 weeks. From this time to this time is 69 total weeks. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for the half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay. So Daniel, it's interesting to me, he didn't even finish his prayer. He says, while I was still praying, Gabriel appeared to me. Well, why did Gabriel come? Gabriel tells us why he came. He says, I'm here to give you understanding and insight about what you're praying about. Daniel is praying, when are the people going to return back home? When are they going to, the people of Judah going to get to return from captivity in Babylon back to Jerusalem? He knows that the time is close. And so Gabriel comes to give him some knowledge and to give him some insight about that. And so he talks to him. Does God answer prayer? This is an interesting note here. Um, he says, verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. While Daniel was praying, God acted. God sent a word to Gabriel, and Gabriel came to Daniel to reveal that word, and he came to Daniel before Daniel even stopped praying. Does God hear listen to and answer prayer he did for Daniel he heard Daniel's prayer in the moment acted in the moment and responded before the prayer was even over that's powerful isn't it and so he says I'm here to give you knowledge and wisdom and insight about this because you're loved so listen to me and understand this vision well this is a picture of me whenever I was going through verses 24 through 27 that's what I felt like um I told Sheila across the hall that I was struggling a little bit. I told her I was going to call on her, let her explain it to us. Um, but again, there's just so many different ways of thinking about this. And there's so many different ways of interpreting verses 24 through 27. Like I said earlier, I'm just going to tell you what I think. And if you don't think what I think is good, well, that's okay. Because it's what I think. I'm going to give you my... I, I, I did not read one single interpretation that satisfied every single question. Um, so I think we can get the main point out of this, and I'm going to share with you my main point out of this, but let's walk through the weeds here for just a minute. So this prophecy of 70 weeks, it centers on the interpretation, the wisdom and insight that Gabriel gives centers on this idea of 70 weeks, and the 70 weeks is divided up. Well, a majority of commentators, especially more conservative commentators, suggest that weeks is symbolic of years. Not saying that we're talking about 70 years, but each day of each week is symbolic of one year. So in 70 weeks, you have 490 days, which the majority of commentators suggest is symbolic of 490 years. Are you with me so far? Let me throw in another wrench to this. There's another way that I think is appropriate to think about this. These numbers could be completely symbolic. 
Maybe it's not actually talking about 490 years, but it's symbolic to say, okay, the number seven equals completeness or perfection, and tens and even multiples of ten can represent in apocalyptic literature undefined amounts of time. So perhaps when we take those two, seven with 70, a multiple of 10, perhaps what we're saying is this is going to be an undefined amount of time, but each time it's divided up is a complete, something complete is going to happen. Okay, so these, could, these numbers could be completely symbolic. I'm going to give you an interpretation that doesn't suggest that these numbers are completely symbolic, but just to throw it out there, they very well could be. And we're not actually talking about a certain number of years, but we're talking about an undefined amount of time where complete actions were going to take place. Okay, let's keep going then. Anybody have any questions? I'm, I'm glad. You know, I, a professor told me one time, if you're teaching something hard, don't leave time for questions. So, I just threw that one out there, that rookie mistake. Um, okay, so the first division, according to verse 25, not according to the ESV verse 25, but according to every other major translation, the first division of this 70 weeks is 69 weeks. Seven weeks and 62 weeks, which if 70 weeks is symbolic of 490 years, here we're talking about 483 years. Well, let's break that down just a little bit further. Seven weeks, the first one, 49 years, could perhaps be the period of time from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem from King Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 7, which was given in 457 B.C., to the time that Jerusalem was actually rebuilt. So from the time the decree went out to the time that Jerusalem was rebuilt, 49 years. Seven weeks. That answers Daniel's prayer, doesn't it? Daniel's praying about, hey, when are they going to get to go back home? When is the temple going to be rebuilt? When is your face going to once again shine upon the ruins in the city of Jerusalem? With the first part of this, God answers that. A decree is going to come. 49 years, the city of Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. But then you have the 62 weeks, which could be symbolic of 434 years. That could refer to the period of time from when Jerusalem was rebuilt, so at the end of those 49 years, the, 680, or the 434 years starts, from the period of time when Jerusalem was rebuilt to the time of the Anointed One, or some translations might say the Messiah. That's the Hebrew word. I think you're talking about Jesus. So from the, time, the 434 years, from the time Jerusalem was rebuilt till the time the Messiah Jesus came on the scene would put us at 27 A.D., which is the year we believe Jesus began His public ministry. The year that Jesus was baptized by John. So we keep going. When you get down to verse 27, you have this third division of half a week, which if one week is seven years, then half a week would be three and a half years. Well, that could refer to Jesus begins His public ministry at the end of the 62 weeks. Well, the half a week could refer to the amount of time of His public ministry. We believe that Jesus ministered, preached, taught on earth for probably about three and a half years, and perhaps that's what verse 27 refers to. But then notice in verse 26 that the Messiah or the Anointed One was going to be cut off. 
which was unheard of, right? The Messiah is supposed to be victorious. But here, the Messiah is going to be cut off, perhaps a reference to Jesus' crucifixion. Any thoughts so far? Okay, let's keep going. And then following Jesus' crucifixion, when you go to verses 26 and 27, the people of a prince in verse 26, I don't think this is talking about the same prince, the Messiah, the anointed one, the prince. This is talking about a different prince. A prince, a pe- the people of a prince are going to destroy the Jerusalem and the temple completely. So it's going to be rebuilt, but it's not going to last forever. It's going to be destroyed completely by another prince who has a people. I think that's symbolic of the Romans. Destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple in A.D. 70 under Emperor Titus. And I think we can be pretty confident in that one because when you go to Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, Jesus actually interprets this part for us. Notice that Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Well, when does Daniel talk about that? Verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So, Jesus says, when you see What Daniel's talking about there, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, hey, think back to Daniel. Think back to what Daniel said there. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mount. So Jesus says, basically, when you see the army of the Romans standing in Jerusalem, standing in the temple, the place where they shouldn't stand, Christians, you know it's your time to get out. Run to the mountains because you know that destruction is about to happen. So, I think that's kind of the timeline that it talks about here. Notice that the purposes of verse 24 directly align with what Jesus came to do. So verse 24, I mean, think about Jesus here. Jesus came to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit. What do you think that means? He's going to do away with the Old Testament law. He's going to fulfill it in his life. And he's going to do away with the Old Testament law. And he's going to anoint a most holy place in the lives and hearts of his people. I think when you think about purpose, verse 27 also plays a role here. That for a week, remember this could be symbolic here, for a week he's going to make a strong covenant with many. That could refer to a complete amount of time. Perhaps talking about Jesus is going to establish His new covenant with His people for a complete amount of time. One week, seven days. But then for the half a week, He's going to put an end to sacrifice and offering. So Jesus is going to put an end to the sacrificial, uh, the sacrificial, what's the word? System of the Old Testament. And He's going to establish His own covenant with His people. A new covenant in His blood. So, if you get confused in the weeds, like I do, I think this is the main point. This, th- this kind of helps me a lot to think about this. So, put it in the context of the chapter. Daniel has concern for when the people of Judah will return to Jerusalem from captivity and rebuild the temple. He wants to know when they will be delivered from the punishment of their sins. Captivity in Babylon. So God wants to communicate that the Jews will return. And they will rebuild the city, Jerusalem, and the temple within it. However, 
So he answers Daniel's question, but then gives a lot more information. However, the temple in Jerusalem is not going to stand forever. A Messiah will come, an anointed one, who will bring something better than a rebuilt city and temple. The Messiah will truly deliver them from their sins. Daniel's saying, hey, when are you going to deliver us from when we rebelled against you and take us back home? God says, a Messiah is going to come and He's truly going to deliver you from your sin. He's going to put an end to sin. He'll also put an end to the Jewish way of life, religion, and temple. Because the Jews rejected Him though, the temple will be destroyed by the Roman army, Matthew 24, never to be rebuilt again. So if you get lost in the weeds of, of Daniel 7, 24-27, I think that's the main point. I think that's what it, we're trying to get across here. Daniel is saying, when are the people of Judah going to get to come back from captivity? And God says, let me tell you about this plan that I have. And it's not, just, it's not fulfilled in the Jews coming back from captivity, but it's fulfilled in my Messiah bringing something way better than that. That's my best guess. Anybody else got a guess? Okay, let's just a couple application points here. Um, I think it's interesting that Daniel builds his prayer life on the Word of God. He builds his prayer life on Scripture. I don't know what your prayers might look like, but I think this is something we should adopt. When was the last time you prayed for something that Scripture talks about? Something Scripture promises? Some kind of hope that we are given? Have you ever prayed through Scripture before? That's a powerful practice where you sit down, and perhaps this is what Daniel is doing as he reads through Jeremiah. He's praying through that passage of Scripture. It'd kind of be like this. If you're reading John 3.16, For God so loved the world. God, thank You for loving the world so much. That He did what? That He sent His only begotten Son. God, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for what He did for me. Can you see the point there? Praying through Scripture. It's powerful to do this with the Psalms because the Psalms are prayers anyway. So, build your prayer life on the Word of God. Pray through Scripture. Allow the Word of God to shape your prayer life. Daniel did that. Confess your sins to God. It's powerful that Daniel didn't just say, I'm Daniel, right? I'm, I'm the holy prophet here, and these are the sinful people. I'm going to pray for their sins. No, verse 20, he says, I'm praying for my sins. Confess your sins to God and get specific with it. Don't just say, God, forgive me for my sins that I committed today, but God, I... I said something today I shouldn't have. I'm sorry about that. I was talking to this person and I said something to them that was out of the way and it was unnecessary and it was uncalled for. And I, I'm asking for your forgiveness in that. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ask God for what you want. Daniel did. Daniel didn't approach God to say, hey, I know better than you, so let me make these requests and you just do what I tell you to do. No, Daniel says, this is what I want. And God, if it's in accordance with your will, then I pray that this will happen. Paul, I think, commands us to do the same thing in Philippians 4. That last underlined part there, that's a command. That's an imperative. Let your request be made known to God. Talk to God about what you want. And then this point to me is, what we see from 24 through 27 is that all of history leads to and is centered on Jesus. All of it. The Jews went into captivity in Babylon. God brought them out after 70 years. They rebuilt Jerusalem. 
But then the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple that the Jews had rebuilt. What does all that go back to? What does all of that center on? It all goes back to Jesus. God worked through history to bring His Son into the world, as Paul says, at the fullness of times, Galatians 4, at just the right moment. And I think that's a powerful takeaway we can, we can walk away with from Daniel chapter 9. Any other thoughts on this? A difficult passage, but hey, if it is the most difficult, we got it behind us, right? Yeah, we don't have to talk about that again. Um, let me say this as we get ready to extend the invitation. All of history leads to and centers on Jesus. Well, that's not going to make any difference in your life unless your life leads to Jesus. Unless your life is centered on Jesus. Is it centered on Jesus? If it's not, it can be. As we stand and as we sing.